Well, the purpose of preaching and the purpose of teaching is to pour truth into our minds, to pour it in our mind in a persuasive way, in a convicting way, to pour it into our minds where we have a clear and precise and defined way that we understand uh, God's Word, that we know Him. That's, that's its purpose, preaching and teaching. So the truth that is continually put forth into our minds becomes like a part of us. It becomes our very food that we have to have. So when uh, when you eat regular food, we know that it's part of the body of uh, your life. It's your energy by which uh, by which you live. So so is the truth. So the goal of uh, preaching and teaching is to give truth, to give us strength. Translates into strength, I guess. Translates into uh, usefulness. So that's why we're here as we uh, gather around. Uh, the feet of the Lord, really, uh, to be able to understand His Word a little bit further. Uh, the Bible and the Word of God that comes into us then starts creating attitudes, the way that we live. And whenever uh, it becomes actually mixed with your thought life, your your very thinking, your very being, it generates attitudes on how you think on things and how it controls uh, your behavior. The Word of God actually controls us, doesn't it? The Spirit of God controls us. That's what we want. That's what a Spirit-filled person is, is being controlled by the very Word of God. And so, uh, we want to have a clear mind and have this this truth that translates into uh, action, something that we do. Uh, our attitudes, our, our thinking, having that correctly in our, in our hearts, our minds. So, the sound hearing of the Word of God is... Uh, becoming the very fabric of our lives. And, you know, it's line upon line, precept upon precept. There's probably not going to be one... Well, there's probably some messages that you've heard down through the years, maybe years ago or something that still sticks in your mind. But usually you don't... You wouldn't say you remember everything that we... Um, let's say just even last Sunday, just a few days ago. How much of that do you really remember? You know, you start thinking, oh, wow, we were here for an hour. What was it about? I think it was, it was in Mark. <laughs> it was, in Mark it was in Mark 7? But how much of that in detail? Well, what happens is the Lord takes a line, a whole principle. And of course, the Bible calls it line upon line, precept upon precept. And regardless of... You're not going to, you're not going to remember you know, everything that's said. You're not even going to remember half of what's said. But you're going to get the the idea. You're going to remember that. You're not going to remember me word for word or anybody else. But what it does is starts making uh, from the very time we become a Christian throughout our Christian lives. Every time we hear Scripture, it just builds upon layer after layer, and that's um, an ongoing thing. That's why uh, we want to stay steady with it. And so, and it does do it. And you say, "Well, I can't." I, I even read a couple of pages, especially one of those Puritan Banner of Truth books back there. You know, I challenge you. Uh, if you haven't read any Puritan books, take one of them. Some of them are really small, but they're, they're really packed. But you might read two pages at a time. Two pages at a time, and that's good. That's good enough. If that's all you we can get, believe me, that's a lot. That's enough for the day if you think on it. That's really good. And then, of course, you think of the Scripture where it's at, and that's, that's the power behind it, the Spirit of God there, Word of God, and that's what they're writing about. Um, you know, but sometimes you might read a couple pages, and you'll say, what did I just read? How often does that happen? You're reading the Scripture. You, you might have read a whole chapter or two chapters or maybe a whole, whole book here. And say, so, I don't really know what I even read. <laughs> does that ever happen? Guilty. Uh, I don't know if it's so guilty or not, but you know, sometimes it it just doesn't seem to be there. But listen, God is taking His word, and He does bless that. Uh, sometimes we have to think harder than maybe other times, or maybe uh, maybe He wants us to think harder on it and go back over it and read it again and really look at it. Yeah, Barb. I echo Tim on that. I'm reading one from your library right now, the Indwelling Spirit Believers. Mm-hmm. Pages at a time is all I can digest. I brought that one back. Fortification. <laughs> hey, don't feel alone. That's John Owen. Yeah. There have been 
great scholars who have said the same thing. Guys that write books that are well read. And uh, John Owen writes hard. It, you know, even, even in his books that are broken down. <laughs> but... Um, That's just fine. That's good. If it makes us read and think and then magnify God, then that's that's what we're about. That's right. We're not in we're not in a hurry. We uh we as Spurgeon said, we we live in the Bible and we visit good books. Why don't we uh, have a word with the Lord? Father, we uh thank you for who you are. You are a great God. Holy God, majestic that You are, may we hold You up as much as we know in our own minds that uh, You have given in Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at You, that we see the beauty, the beauty of Your great attributes, Your holiness. And uh, Lord, that that would take hold in our lives and then, of course, as a result of it, amounts to obedience and desire to follow you uh, even more than ever. And as we look at uh, your practical section in First Peter tonight, that it would remind us, being ever so mindful of uh, the battle that we're in and then what it translates into and then how God keeps us throughout uh, the battles and throughout all the different difficult times and situations that we have. We thank You that He is our very strength, our very stronghold. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we uh, were on verse 8, and that's really about where we stay. And I don't think we even got out of it. We were talking about uh, the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. And of course, Eldon added something I thought was very interesting about the, the man in Africa who said a roaring lion is one who has already had his prey. <laughs> and that's fascinating. So, you know, uh, we we think of um, Satan's attacks on different people and of course we know how he uh, works with unbelievers and blinds the minds of the unbelievers second corinthians 4 says and we uh, I don't think we talked about it too much about how satan attacks christians he he has attacks on on individual christians uh, can you ever tell when a demon is attacking you uh, maybe sometimes you probably have maybe there've been times when you didn't know uh, sometimes I can't really tell. I can't. I can't see any demons. But uh, man, so, sometimes you wonder if you, if they're around. You can't feel them, but at the same time, something is happening here. We know we wrestle. We wrestle uh, not against the flesh and blood. And so it happens. Sometimes it's very closely involved, and some of you may may feel it. <laughs> it or almost feel it, but. Um, Devil, demons will attack us through the system, through the alluring of the world system. It so often happens. Uh, we definitely are attacked in that way. If uh, we know that it's a, it can be very personal too, but uh, I don't think that they can get into your minds and possess you as a Christian. Uh, they can definitely uh, influence us. Uh, they uh, they don't exactly always plant every evil thing that we do into our minds. Uh, but they, they use the system of the world and uh, definitely the, the flesh, flesh being the, the beachhead. So we do get, uh, we do get uh, our share of attacks uh, influenced uh, rather uh, heartily sometimes, controlling factors sometimes. But um, when you uh, think about how Satan has done it, or the, the enemy, from the time of Adam and Eve, way back in Genesis. We see that he's operated in temptation three ways. 1 John 2, 15-17 gives us that. We kind of touched on this last week. Just a reminder, this is uh, something that's boiled down into uh, a really short sentence. 
but it does say a lot with what's going on. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. That's the world system. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So Satan can use the world and the world uh, has its lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and you think uh, that it's kind of like three gates. Three gates. Uh, you think you go up because of what we see, because of what we feel, and of course uh, the the big sin of pride. And you know we have battles with all that constantly. And then we think, uh, well, what are some Christians that have been attacked by the enemy, Satan? And you can go throughout all of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Job is one, of course, we see very uh, distinctly there where Satan really gets permission from God to, to do that. What was God's purpose in it? I think ultimately, I think we see that Job is strengthened when it's all done. God has a, a way of doing things sometimes and it goes way beyond what we can even think what he's doing. Uh, that was a mysterious aspect. But uh, I think there's definitely a lot of lessons in, involved in that. Of course, ultimately we see the glory of God in it. And we see that Job uh, is repenting in dust and ashes. And uh, God has just shown him <laughs> a big glimpse of uh, who he was. But uh, So, God was in control of the enemy, Satan, actually giving the, the great test or great temptations. Um, in this case, it was just awful suffering. Horrible. Uh, but anyway... We know as it's all done, we see a divine purpose there. So, quite the test. And I know none of us have probably suffered as much as that. Then you think in the New Testament, and you have to think about Paul. And uh, did um, did Paul ever have to take on the attacks of Satan? Uh, you don't have to look too far, but uh, one where he actually uh, mentions it is in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And, of course, he had a lot of great revelations, and one of it being uh, being caught up to the third heaven and in the body, out of the body. He says, I don't know, but um, he saw some glory there. He couldn't even begin to tell people what it was. God uh, more or less kept that from happening, and then he sent him a messenger from who? Satan. God says, um, hey, this is was kind of meant to inflict upon you. Why? So that he'd be humbled. And you think, wow, hasn't Paul been humbled enough already? Um, let's, let's go to that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. If you had seen what he had seen, how could you not have some kind of human pride unless God keeps that from happening? There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Exclamation point. That's quite a powerful verse. Keep reading. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. That's good. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Only strong in the Lord. Um, thorn in the flesh. And, of course, you know I'm not even going to try to take a stab at that one. Because everybody else has, and there are probably a thousand different answers for that. 
and so I don't know if anybody really knows. Maybe somebody has, with that many answers, somebody's probably right, but we don't know <laughs> for sure. Uh, but that messenger of Satan, uh, some people have said, hey, have you ever, has anybody here ever suffered physically in any way or form? <laughs> well, you could apply this to this, and it might be that that's what is the deal with Paul. I don't really know, but um, there it is. Uh, God says His grace is sufficient and uh, yes, you have a weakness there but the thing is God has the strength and no matter what it is weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions whatever it is I mean, just anything for Christ's sake then I I, I realize this I'm weak, he's strong and so a lesson was taught to Paul as if he needed it yeah, he did he's a human Although he was definitely inspired by God, and as he wrote that, that is a great verse for us today, isn't it? That is a great verse. How many times have you gone back and kind of pulled that out, realized okay? But it's it's, it's interesting. God, moral well, not more or less, he did have Satan do that, as he did with Job, and that is rather remarkable. That God, our Father would not only allow it, but he's desiring for that to happen. And of course, you think of Peter, and uh, you go to, uh, I think it's is that Luke 22. I like that voice. <laughs> That's good. It's usually Mama. I'm hearing Daddy tonight. <laughs> has a good ring to it. I like that. Simon, Simon. Do you like what he calls him there? It doesn't call him Rock, Rock. <laughs> Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan, the adversary, has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that this won't happen. Huh? No. <laughs> that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, which means (laughs) he's going to fail, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Peter said, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will crow today until you've denied three... will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. We know the story on that. Peter didn't quite fare too well there, did he? Uh, But God did. Christ did. Christ uh, was there. And, of course, there was a strengthening that happened. Uh, He has purposes for releasing some really terrible things sometimes to us. Even Satan demanding permission to sift us like wheat. Isn't that incredible? It's hard to imagine a sovereign God would do that. But we know He does. In Acts 5, there's kind of a different, kind of a negative thing happened there. You have Ananias and Sapphira. They uh, lie to the Holy Spirit. And if you pick it up in uh, verse 3, Acts 5, verse 3, Ananias and Sapphira are part of the church, early in the church. Look at this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I kind of forget about that Satan filling the heart. And I remember always that he lied to the Holy Spirit, or they did. But he says, Satan filled your heart. And of course, that temptation. They're they're responsible for their actions, though. Satan is there filling the heart. Why did they allow him to do that, though? It filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. We know the results of that. But there again, uh, Peter says, inspired by God and the Spirit, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Who's the liar of all the liars? A deceiver. And they lied from the beginning. So, um, there again, God 
actually he could have kept that from happening. That's a that's almost seems like a blight on the church in the early church. That, that looks like a, a matter of fact. What did it do? It kept people from coming into the church. But we see there's a good thing about that because people who did knew what the cost it was. It was a very serious thing to be part of the church uh, and they would be held accountable. And so God used that. Who knows how many reasons are used for that. Um, But it definitely proved that they were sinful and uh, a strong point was made. In 1 Corinthians 5, you have a man identifying with the church. He was in all sorts of immorality and his stepmother, sexual relationships, whatever's going on there. And uh, in chapter 5, 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I decided, that's a tough statement, I decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. The destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved. That's rather remarkable, isn't it? God uh, sets Satan after one who calls himself a Christian to judge his flesh, to even destroy him, to, to even kill him if he may be. The spirit is more important than that, but uh, that would drive one to Christ, back to him. So a person like this is turned over to Satan without the protection of God, without the protection of the rest of the church as they pray. He's out there by himself. Uh, the flesh may even be destroyed in some terrible way. Uh, maybe through disease. Uh, maybe through uh, a sexual disease. Through the sexually promis- prom- promiscuous people. Right? And of course, who knows how much of that could be going on today. No, certainly could. And then to the uh, leaders in Ephesus, when you go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. Tough statements. Talking about, uh, he's telling Timothy in 19, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they'll be taught not to blaspheme. This is uh, Paul as he's writing to Timothy. And uh, he's saying, hey, you you fight the good fight. Look look at that in verse 18. Uh, I command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. So what all are we talking about in First Peter? It's about fighting the enemy, isn't it? It's, it's a biblical thing. It's something that a lot of people really wouldn't want to talk about because it sounds so negative. This is this is really we shouldn't even be bringing up Satan, you know. Or some uh, liberal people would say that Satan doesn't exist. Hell doesn't exist. Satan doesn't exist. It's all in your mind. It's all in your thinking. What do you mean he turns over to Satan? What's that? What does that mean? Well, yeah, and of course, well, Paul being an apostle, and of course. He's writing Scripture. He and he does have an authority. He knows what's going on, and of course he knows. Of course he's being inspired by God as he would, as he speaks this, as he writes this. There's the sense of where God turned Job over to Satan. Now that was for not necessarily for him sinning, you know, for some particular thing, or you know, Paul. But here he's saying now. I have the authority in that sense as an apostle being inspired by God knowing that this is the right thing to do that now it's like he's out of the safety of God out of the safety of the church Uh, he's on his own Satan can do whatever he wants and we know what he did with Job's family and even Job himself and who knows what might have happened here with these guys um Definitely, uh, when, when we're talking about the physical flesh, um, some drastic things can happen—diseases and what have you—and God can strike. What's the purpose for that? 
Well, we know for one thing that these particular guys, I mean, it's, it's stated right here in, uh, in our, our Timothy passage. I think I just turned from there, but that's chapter 1, I think. Um, you have them speaking false prophecies. Okay? False teaching is what's going on. And of course, um, they weren't keeping the faith. They had they had shipwrecked. They were blaspheming, as it says in verse twenty. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. There's the obvious reason. I mean, it's stated right there by God. Well, it's yeah. It's dealing with their own um, their own teaching, their own pride. Um, these men needed to be uh, to be taught what true teaching of the Word of God was, and of course they brought in probably some own, their own things. It's it's definitely false teaching, and they rejected uh, some of the truths. And so he names the names, and then he says, "I hand them over to Satan," just like he said earlier in the in the First Corinthians five passage. And really, it's it's God doing that. Uh, and the church has the same kind of duty to do, and it's carried out in was it Matthew 18, where we have church discipline. And of course, there are many. There's a lot of procedure to go through. And of course, you probably are, are familiar with that. You know, it's one person, then it's two or three witnesses, and then it's for the whole church. If they continue and uh, do what they were doing or whatever it is and they still don't change and it's like they thumb their nose at at everybody else at the church then after after that time then they are to be put out of the church because they uh deny uh God's truth and God's people bringing it to them when people have used the word of God and so that's the same kind of procedure that's what uh, Paul would be carrying out here and him as apostle uh, is telling what happens to an individual that uh, does serious things like that. You know, we all sin, but whenever there are very serious matters, the immorality that was happening, the false teaching, blasphemy, that is something that uh, has to be done. And so, um, here it is, um, one who, two of them, that were acting as preachers of Christ, and... Uh, Satan could actually make a laughing stock out of these individuals. He can do whatever he wants. And I think that goes on today. I think we've seen it in our time. I think we've seen false teachers, uh, sometimes uh, sexually, uh, sometimes money. Both of those things seem to be popular. That they're caught by uh, the world. (laughs) And so they get involved with the law. Um, Anyway, there are good reasons why God would turn people over to Satan. And that's believers who are even obedient for the most part. Uh, definitely there's a point to be made because He's strengthening their faith. That's, you, know, you look at those passages and you go, that just sounds funny. It doesn't sound right that God would turn people over to, to Satan. But we know it to be true. Yes. If He turned... Like Job, and he turns the Christian over to Satan to be sifted. Um, does he always know? I'm, I know he knows everything, but um, would he ever do that knowing the person isn't going to make it through the sifting? Let's see. Let's go to First Corinthians, chapter. Oh, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, this one, the one I was thinking of is verse 13. Chapter 10, I'm sorry. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. That's the key there. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, 
so that you will be able to endure it. So we have the ability to endure what we go through. What if we do fall? What if we do fail? What happened to Peter? He did fail. He denied the Lord three times. It's pretty serious. But yet, in the long run, what happened? He still endured through it because Christ had interceded for him. And Christ always is interceding for us. Could somebody actually be taken all the way to the point of death? And there's a passage in 1 John where it talks about that and in other passages. Yeah, one could be disobedient even to all the way to the point of, of uh, till God takes them out. Yeah. But, but spiritually and eternally, if they are His, He will keep them all the way through it, even despite that terrible sin that they did. That's how great of a God that we have, so gracious, so merciful. Uh, so, but this gives us great hope in verse 13, knowing that God is so faithful that no matter what kind of test or temptation comes, we can get through this. You know, we can we can do it because of uh, of, of God, His strength, uh, and He will never bring it on more than you can handle. You think, well, wasn't that more than what Job could handle? Well, on his own. It probably could have been because he was ready to take himself out, but yet it was not more than he could handle because God was faithful and he was with him. They were part of the church. I I, I consider them uh, yes, they were believers. Mm-hmm. Can, can so can he take believers out? Well, he certainly does. And that what Bob was just mentioning, which I didn't even think about, the Lord's Supper, and everybody's familiar with that passage there. Some. Uh, were were sick even to the point of dying, death, because they were taking the Lord's Supper uh, in in a vain way, in a wrong way. They were dishonoring that, and God has to make examples out of certain situations. Uh, we tend to think the worst thing that can happen to us is to die. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to die in a situation where I've done. I'm, I'm in a in a sinful act. It really wouldn't be something that I would uh, uh, be prideful over at all. <laughs> um, but there's always the fact that God is the one that keeps us, and the eternal matter is is what is so awesome. So those are extreme matters, but it shows how much God is in control. So if one gets scared of thinking about the doctrine of Satan, uh, the very enemies that we have, it must be learned, it must be taught, it must be read about. It's throughout Scripture. Uh, The Old and New Testament uh, may not be comforting, but it is comforting when we look at what how God uses all of this, and it's ultimately for His glory, and it's for our good always. And it's there to strengthen us. He's been talking about suffering in this book. Then he finally comes to the point of Satan who causes a lot of that suffering. (laughs) And so, I see nothing but great hope throughout the book of Peter. And as he gets ready to finish this out, he mentions that and he wants to make it very aware that they have an enemy there that is attacking them. And so when they're persecuted... Uh, Satan has uh, a lot to do with what is going to happen from the Roman Empire and then uh, other different situations. Well, what does a Christian to do? Verse 9 gives the Christian's actions that are against the devil. And first of all, he says, but resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace... Did you guys get that? The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ... Boy, these are loaded will Himself perfect, confirm, 
strengthen and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. End of the book, right? P.S. <laughs> we'll stop there for a moment. Mm, there is so much here. So Ananias and Sapphira, he restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established when they were dead. If they were, because that's what he always does. The outcome doesn't look good at the end, and uh, it's rather uh, there's uh, there's a shame there. Yeah, and there are going to be people that are not going to join the church, and because they're not willing to pay the price. But there will be other people who do join the church, and they're willing because they know that there's a great cost. And believe me, it kept the church holy for a while. <laughs> um, church is always holy, but sometimes it doesn't look like it. The church is the bride of Christ. We have to remember that. Even despite some of the ugliness, uh, and I'm ta- whenever I say that church, I'm talking about the true believers. You know that invisible part. Were Ananias and Sapphira a part of that group? They were definitely a part of the church. They were part of the organized yeah. outward church. Were yeah. they part of the, the true church? Well, I tend to think they are. Um, you don't know. But I, I can't tell you. Maybe whenever I get there, I'll know. I, I really tend to think like Saul. I think most people would say that he was an unbeliever. You know, and you look at the things that he did, and of course, but that even in that, you can't always judge that. We don't know the hearts, but as you see the biblical things there, it's, there's some weight there. I think uh, we know in First John that he talks about the people that, or in in uh, the Lord's Supper, that there were people there again. They're part of the church. Were they were they all believers? Probably not. But were some of them believers? Probably so. God, I don't think God tends to take people out of the church who are unbelievers. He, he says leave them in there. You know, leave the, the wheat with the chaff, you know. And, you know, to, to make an example, to, to show His, you know, His uh, holiness and to... Uh, Keep the church at that time in that, that you know in that particular realm that they were in, uh, you know, in that state of purity or whatever. You know, it seems to me that, that they were probably believers that he killed to. Uh, oh, that's interesting too, you know, because what did to purify that that witness? If they were non-believers, they could have just been. You know, found out. So what would you expect of a non-believer? Like a non-believer right? Yeah, ultimately they would show their true sight, and no need to kill them. Just you, know, you, you guys are out you now, but or we turn you over to Satan out there. You're not in the hedges of the church anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, these are just thoughts I'm having, but um, I want to say say something else here. I don't want to divert too much off what we're talking about, which is related. Today I was listening to Ravi Zechariah's talk, and uh, he was speaking about a, a, a speech that he gave uh, to a bunch of people, believers, non-believers, and so on. You know, one of his, uh, one of his uh, gatherings that he had years and years ago. Well, anyway, um, uh, he found out later that one of the people who came to that was a, a female physician who was an unbeliever, but she um, she was moved by his talk of the gospel and she her comments later were that was very persuasive. I wonder how he is at home, you know, to the her friend that brought her. You know, I wonder what his life is like when he's at home. You know, that was a very persuasive speech, but that's just a speech, you know, what what is that person like at home? What are they like in the rest of their life? You know, that's that's, um, I thought that was very interesting. You know, he said that really convicted him, and he prayed to God right then to be, you know, that God would keep him through uh, Yeah, yeah, you know, and, you know. But 
you know, something else I'm getting from from this reading, and then I last week and this week I keep going back here to James in the fourth chapter because they're both speaking a lot of the same things about the, the body of Christ and mm-hmm. the churches remaining humble uh, and to resisting evil, resisting the devil. Uh, both from a witnessing standpoint and then a fact of, you know, God can use his people when they are faithful, <laughs> you know, and not getting carried away with all these other distractions, diversions, sins, uh, things that bog us down, you know. And, and I'm getting, what I'm getting from this is there's a lot of interdependence here that, you know, Peter's exhorting and James is exhorting. The, the group of Christians, not just individuals, because we don't operate in a vacuum of you know, lone rangers, but he's saying, you churches, you know, work together to do this because this is the way God's pattern is for you. You, you know, uh, that devil can take down a whole, that roaring lion can try to take down a whole congregation, you know, split them mm-hmm. up, whatever. <coughs> um, so. Anyway, this humility thing is just really, really starting to sink in a lot more um, as the key to you know walking with God. Very much so. You know, as as yeah. Christ did, because we're going to suffer. It'll be in different ways for different people. God will use use you know His ways of working that through different people's lives. But see, that's another reason why we all need to be involved with each other because we have to share that. Nobody suffers alone. <laughs> Matter of fact, that's what Peter's saying right here. The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. Even yeah. Yeah. yeah, it reminded me of the church in Russia. Uh, Sergei, uh, mm. his letters and things. You know, that's encouraging. You know, they can they share that with us and then he can be a blessing to them, maybe a blessing to us, things like that. Yeah, we were talking about judgment earlier there in First uh, Peter 4. For it is time for judgment. And where does it first start at? The household of God. The household of God. Yeah. And of course it stands on out. So we, as Christians, it says resist them. If you back up a little bit in verse 8, we didn't really hit on this last week because we got into the the part about the devil prowling. Be of sober spirit on the alert. Uh, two words that you see quite frequently in Scripture. Uh, uh, sober mind it's, or self-control. Uh, that's the idea. Controlling, being in control of the issues uh, of life. The priorities of life. Uh, being in their proper order. It's disciplining the, the body. Disciplining the mind. Um, the world has all sorts of allurements, doesn't it? Allurements comes from there, and of course Satan uses that too. But it's having a well-disciplined thought life, you know, thinking right, a disciplined life, self-restraint, you know, restraining self, disciplining the heart, the mind. Um, what do we read? You know, what what do we uh, listen to? What do we watch? We want to be self-controlled in that sense. And of course, it's being controlled by God's Spirit, but that's the idea. That's one of the first things to do is be a sober. Spirit. You, know, you think of being sober versus drunkenness. Well, it's, it's being self-controlled there, and uh, all the things we do. My, you see all sorts of passages by Paul uh, or Peter, um, and it's dealing with self-control. I think mean, even Peter, just staying within that epistle, back to chapter one, verse thirteen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. So it's having our minds being controlled by, by God, preparing our minds for action, keep sober in spirit. And of course, fix your hope completely on the grace of God. Remember that? And we spent quite some time on that part. But uh, Chapter 4, verse 7, just back a little bit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So Peter has used that a couple of other times. Paul uses it quite quite frequently, and so just being self-controlled, watching. Uh, next word is alert. 
Be alive. Be awake. Dangers are there. Pilgrim's Progress. We have that great big book sitting on the table back there. If you haven't read it, you got to read that. Large print. I think it's a 28-point type. No. Get <laughs> in Old English, right? Ye Old English. The original, right? And, and there's a part in there about uh, the man who went to sleep. Anybody remember that story? Yeah. And uh, there's, uh, of course, I think... Um, uh, Christian almost did that too, but he didn't, did he? And of course, that's what happens. Dangers are there whenever we're sleeping. Peter knew all about this. And of course, uh, he knew what it was to be sleeping when he was supposed to be praying. Mm-hmm. Peter says, be on the alert. Not only sober-minded, but be watchful. Stay awake. Be ready. You remember, there's Abaddon. There's Apollyon. Uh, which means there's a destroyer out there. Be awake. And so now we take those two words, self-control and alert or watchful, and then we take the word resist him in verse 9. And what's that mean? Well, in the Greek, uh, the literal meaning is to stand up against. He's, He's not telling us to run. You'd think, well, that'd be the thing to do. We run from sin. If we see some kind of sin that comes up, that's a temptation. Get away from it like Joseph. But we don't run away from the devil, though. We, we stand firm. We, we fight. What did uh, Paul tell Timothy? Fight the good fight. And Paul fought the good fight of faith, right? Uh, stand firm. How do you stand against it? Well, we have the revealed Word of God. That's right. It's, it's the Word of God. Yeah, you can tell him his future here. <laughs> Anyway, 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we are, we're human, physical, but we walk in the flesh, what? We don't war according to the flesh. So there's no physical strategy that we can take against Satan. There's <laughs> nothing physical we can do. There's no mental strategy uh, against Satan. There's no verbal strategy against Satan that's going to knock him down. But um, it's going to be the Word of God. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Right? So we don't battle Satan with human plans and human ingenuity or human words, putting up crosses like that and binding him. But what we do is we do like Christ did and we bring out the truth. And as we know the truth, if we're obeying the truth, we've been doing that, whatever enemy comes up against us, whatever it is, we stand on the truth, we obey the truth. And that's how we fight the good fight. Keeping the faith. You don't even have to talk to him. I used to... Think you know you had to cast him out. You had to speak to him. And then I heard a sermon um, that made me really stop and think about that. It was like, you know, who do you really want to be talking to? Do you want to be talking to him or do you want to be talking to God? You know, when you you're in a battle, you know, do you really want to take him on or would you just soon say, hey God, you know, and just talk to God instead of him? Right. I was watching TV. Christian TV at that point in time. Well, you're right. You go to the captain. Yeah, right. And he has the orders. He has the truth. He has the word. You just obey him and you keep the faith and a good conscience. I think as Paul told Timothy, what does that mean? Well, holding on to the faith, which is the truth, right? Faith and truth go together. When you have that revealed truth and you've been obeying it, you have a good conscience. Meaning that you believe the truth, you're standing firm, and uh, whenever um, he has to leave, eventually he did Jesus. Uh, there was three temptations on Jesus. Uh, and what does it say? He'll flee from you, right? You just keep standing up, Word of God, uh, resisting. Of course, that Matthew 4 is a classic. What does Jesus say? It is written. He quoted right out of the law. And don't feel alone. Uh, you're in good company. Because even before TBN and all that, uh, Luther threw his ink well off the wall. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that. That's supposed to still be there today. <laughs> if anybody was ever attacked, it would have been Luther. Yeah.
Be always strong in the Lord. What is probably talking here a little bit then? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there's a there's another sense like yeah. I know it's, that's yeah. Evil to leave. Right. Ephesians six ten says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord. Ephesians six thirteen talks about put on the full armor of God. Right. Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. Evil day is any day that you have uh, you have this uh, terrible battle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's a good way to start the day. And Ephesians six eighteen. Well, there's this is the word of God in this with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. <laughs> we all need your prayers. Be on the alert. Be watchful. Be sober. Be strong in the Lord. Have your armor on. Have that Word of God. Right? It's, there's nothing magical here. It's, it's taking God's Word, the Christ, our Savior, you know, it's a matter of our, our whole life. Pray without ceasing. That's right. So, if I know the truth, I obey the truth, I resist the devil. It may not feel like it, but you're standing on the promises of God and I. Right? That's what it is. It's, it's standing on that. Um, wow, we can't go any further. We didn't get any further than the first line of verse 9. Are you kidding me? We won't end this week. We won't end with the book of Peter. I think we'll probably end up with uh, next week uh, the book of First Peter. And after that, if you guys wouldn't mind, um, there's a cool movie that I haven't seen yet, but it's last about 60 minutes. And it's really maybe kind of a docudrama movie video. It's, it's Spurgeon. And uh, would you guys be for that for for an evening? I think it'd be kind of fascinating. I I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I haven't watched the whole thing. Now the deal is, it's on uh, wherever I get it. I, I'm I'm gonna have to try to uh, download. download it somehow. Uh, maybe I might have to six Zach on that. But I'll, I'll get that some way, and hopefully we'll we'll be able to do that. That'll probably be in two weeks. There's another one that I wouldn't mind getting. It's longer than 60 minutes, so we'd have to divide it up in a couple of Bible studies maybe if we want to do that. I'm not trying to get out of teaching. I'm thinking, well, between books, maybe we could do something a little different. I used to do biographies of people, but we've done them all. But there's one. Um, who's one of the greatest missionaries that stands out in your mind in the 1700s? Oh, Judson's a real good one. Any other ones? Yeah. Seventeen. Who's the one that went to uh, China? Uh, Burma. I'm asking. I'm just... yeah. We'll put that one on hold. Anyway. Let's pray. <laughs>